Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. Well, I've got some super exciting news for you today. I have transferred my podcast to Substack to merge it with my newsletter, the Amateur Gourmet Newsletter. What does that mean? It means that if you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anything like that, nothing's going to change for you except the podcast now comes out on Wednesdays instead of Mondays. So what's different? Well, there are all these bonus features now that you can access if you subscribe to the Amateur Gourmet newsletter on Substack. Number one, you'll get the podcast delivered via email to your inbox every Wednesday with bonus material, including recipes, pictures, and links from that week's podcast and interview. For example, this week's podcast includes a recipe for the whole bass and papillote that my patient made for lunch. Two, if you become a paid subscriber, you'll get access to a bonus episode on Thursdays that is only distributed through Substack. Each week, I'm going to ask my guests 10 fast and funny food questions like, who would you want to cook your death row meal? And if you could only cook with one fat for the rest of your life, what would that be? Last week, paid subscribers got a bonus episode with my guest, Rebecca Metz, where she answered Mary F. Kill, chocolate chip cookies, oatmeal raisin cookies, or peanut butter cookie. Marry chocolate chip, have sex with peanut butter, and absolutely kill oatmeal raisin. No qualms whatsoever. So to reiterate, if you're a fan of this podcast, nothing's changing. You just have an opportunity to get it delivered to your inbox twice a week, along with my Monday and Thursday newsletters, which are filled with recipes, restaurant reviews, and links. So to sign up, go to amateurgourmet.substack.com. That's amateurgourmet.substack.com. Okay, now for this week's episode. My patient today is Matt Rodbard, founder and editor of the James Beard Award-winning website, Taste, and the co-author of the New York Times best-selling book, Koreatown, and the brand new cookbook, Food IQ, which just came out today. In today's episode, we talk all about how his wife rejected his lunch. She was not ready for the full fish, and honestly, it um, she ate one bite and was like, I'm sorry, but I can't. His attitude toward abusive chefs. You know, it, it comes down to no assholes rule. No assholes. Like, don't hire assholes and don't be an asshole. And how to pitch articles to editors. I've had so much silence in my career, and it's just part of it. So as an editor on the other side, I really try to empathize with the work that goes into the pitches. So without further ado, here is my lunch therapy session with Matt Rodbard. No, no, no. You sound really good. So, Matt, you're live on the air. Welcome to lunch therapy. Oh, my gosh. I need lunch therapy. Adam. <laughs> I forgot to I forgot to ask you. I mean, I before we get to your therapy, I want to be a good doctor and make sure I can pronounce your name right. How do you pronounce your last name? It's Rodbard. Rodbard. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure like later when I do my introduction, I'm not like sure. Rodbard. I'm sure you get that a lot. I get lots. I've I get a hot rod that was a that was in high school. <laughs> um MC okay. Bard was uh back when it was okay to call yourself MC. Um uh-huh. and no longer that no longer cool. So I've been <laughs> many <bards>. Bard. <laughs> so I shouldn't call you MC Bard when I introduce you. You um, can call me that. That would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to mention before we're recording now, but this doesn't matter. So we're doing bonus content sure. um, for paid subscribers to Substack. So when this is over, we're going to record 10 extra minutes. So just stay on the line. And if you're listening to this and want to hear the bonus material, I wrote 10 really fun questions for Matt that Love are that. way more fun than the questions I'm going <laughs> to ask him about his lunch. So, uh, and if you want to listen to that, you have to become a paid subscriber to Amateur Gourmet Newsletter. Okay, so Matt, let's talk about this new book you wrote. It's called Food IQ. You co-wrote it with Daniel Holtzman, who's from the Meatball Shop. And it's an awesome, awesome book. Can you tell us about it? 
Thank you so much for having me on the show. I amateur gourmet meant a lot to me uh, when I was starting <laughs> in my career for real. This is this is no bullshit. It was influential, and it's just nice oh. to connect with you on the podcast. I know. Now I've become this like corporate chill promoting my sub sub stack in the beginning of your interview. Isn't that horrible? That's what they told me to do when I transferred my podcast over there. Like you have to promote it. Adam, get that bag. All I got to say, <laughs> get that bag. Okay. <laughs> well, that's very sweet. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I, I, when I was a, at the beginning of food blogging, like I never really thought of it as like a thing, like a form. I just thought of it as just a thing I was doing. But now looking back on it, I'm like, oh yeah, like I was food blogging at the beginning of food blogging. And I didn't really know that that's what I was doing. I mean, let me give you some context. It was like Serious Eats, Smitten Kitchen, Orange Jet, and Amateur Gourmet. Like, listen, it was the, <laughs> if you want to do like some kind of like adaptation for this, for this story of food blogging, I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm sure Ed Levine could be played by uh, somebody extremely tall and crotchety. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just kidding. I love Ed. Um, but I, I love that guy. Um, but I, I feel like there's going to be um, a moment when they're like, okay, there was a golden age of food blogging. <laughs> and it was, you were part of that community for sure. Well, well now, okay, let's turn the tables. This is not about the, the lunch therapist. This is about the patient. Sorry, so okay. where, where, where did you start out? Like when did you start becoming a food writer? I worked um, early in my career. I worked in television and I worked at uh, like uh, Core TV or to MTV for a couple of years. And, and then I segued into the print magazine uh, world mm -hmm. uh, and I worked at some, some, some print pubs. Uh, all doing all sorts of things. I worked in a consumer electronics magazine do, covering the new iPhone back in 2005, like the launch of the iPhone. I was I worked at WWE magazine, which was the <laughs> World Wrestling Entertainment magazine. Oh yeah. yeah, I believe it or not, despite the fact that I'm a homosexual, and maybe because I'm a homosexual, <laughs> I was really, really into WWF wrestling when I was. I, th I think in the 80s. Mm. Like when I grew up, like maybe that was just also a cultural thing. But like if you were like in in Long Island where I grew up um, in fifth grade, you were watching like Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage and the Ultimate Warrior and all that stuff. Absolutely. But that was a golden era, I would say, of, of wrestling. And honestly, yeah. when I worked there, I didn't really know wrestling. I was just like there as a hired guy to interview wrestlers and write about like music randomly uh -huh. it was a random job um i'd like to talk about it one day in uh, in a memoir because listen there's so many yeah. stories but i moved on from wrestling and i started getting serious about food when i started covering the new york dining scene for a for a website i started writing for time out new york and and really i'd okay. say around 2005 is when i started really getting into food writing and to me i i came from music so music was like my life and i interviewed a lot of um bands over the years and, you know, as I, I liked music, but those bands, the interviews, I found to be really kind of boring and staged. But on the flip mm -hmm. side, when I started talking to chefs and t talking about their food and talking about like what they were up to at restaurants, I mean, that was those are really easy interviews to do. And they were really fun. So, like, oh, yeah. And you're not the first person to go from music into food. Like Jonathan Gold was a oh, music yeah. journalist beforehand. And Bill Esparza, who is not just on my podcast, is a is a musician. So mm -hmm. I think that's a very common transition for sure. Absolutely. And I think t telling great stories is journalism. And, and when mm -hmm. you're you're into it, you just look for the best stories. And when you're talking to like the hives about their five favorite, um, you know, types of candy for a, for a, like a, a, a magazine, that's mm -hmm. not great storytelling. <laughs> right. But when I'm interviewing chefs, including Daniel Holtzman, who I wrote this book with, when I met when I was on assignment, you get into like really cool conversations about culture and about food. And 
it's to me the best story. It's the story of a lifetime, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, music musicians who are being interviewed are often promoting something and all those chefs like have restaurants to promote and cookbooks to promote i mean there's still a lot to talk to a chef about in terms of like the food that they're serving and why they're serving it and you know why they're making this it's like it's not the kind of thing you could fake like if it's a soulful dish or a soulful chef i mean it's either there or it's not there so i hear what you're saying yeah absolutely i think the the chef's point of view um, is truly uh, a unique place to to be covering as a as a as a, as a journalist. Like that that point mm-hmm. of view, uh, when you're running a busy restaurant and you're you're telling the, the story of your family's heritage through your food. To be honest, it, it right a lot of it writes itself. Uh, and I think my peers in food media have to agree that we have a we're lucky. We're not writing about like um like uh like technology you know we're not writing about mm-hmm. like cons- consumer electronics we're we're not writing about l- like lubricants for a trade magazine <laughs> this no, stuff that might be interesting maybe i'll write about lubricants but yeah i love i love what i do I'm, i have a dream job it's absolutely amazing and you mentioned the word uh journalism and so i mean i never think of my approach as journalistic at all because i'm not an, in any way like abiding by any scruples or standards yeah. of, of writing but for you is your background, I mean, you mentioned writing about music and all the stuff you wrote about, but were you trained in journalism? And do you think of yourself as a journalist? You know, it's a good question because I think um, sometimes that word gets thrown around and, and it can be challenging to, to kind of, you know, live, live that word and mm-hmm. have a capital J journalism conversation. I personally consider myself that because, listen, I've worked in media since I was 18 years old, working at the Badger mm-hmm. Herald at University of Wisconsin. I was an editor there at a daily paper in college. And I didn't go to journalism school as an English major, but as many know, that's the the, the degree is not required. Right. Um, but I would say my work, I, I'm more, I've written a lot of stories and, and books, but I'm an editor. Like that was mm-hmm. has always been my main trade. I work with writers often. Um, oh yeah, and we should mention that you run an amazing website called Taste, yeah. which has won multiple James Beard awards. So, so in, and so in that role as editor, like you're you're basically overseeing the production of lots of articles and essays. And then are are you applying the, like sort of journalistic standards when you edit? Like, is that something you're thinking about? Like, we have to fact check this. We have to make sure this is yeah. So all that he's nodding. In oh, case I'm nodding, and, and I'll <laughs> yeah. say that yes. Uh, at Taste, you know, we are part of Penguin Random House. Like, I sit at the building okay. and. We take our standards very seriously, and we've been doing that for six years, five years publishing. Publishing, I've been there for six years, and we have to have that approach. Like we do fact check, we do pay our our contributors. Mm-hmm. We, you know, are very uh, clued in on ethics. Like we make sure everything is covered fairly. Like we correct things when they need to be corrected. Mm-hmm. Food writing is a squishy. It's a squishy topic, though. Like is reviewing restaurants journalism well i think bill addison in los angeles would say heck yeah that's journalism yeah he's it's he, a, he approaches it like yeah. journalism he really is so mm-hmm. thorough about everything so mm-hmm. well we have a lot i mean there's a lot of places to go here sure. and i also want to talk to you because it's so funny i mean i'll just i'll open up and be vulnerable here and say that i have pitched to matt before it taste and i am not a very good pitcher i will just acknowledge that like i don't understand about pitching as well as i should so as we get through your interview i want to at some point talk to you about like how to pitch and like what you look for when um, you're reading a pitch i think i approached you because i was reading your sub stack and i was subscribing mm-hmm. to it and i was like we need to we need to link and, and get get you in the pages of taste 
Um, but let's get there. You you let me know when you want to talk about pitching. Uh, I'm happy to, to, to dive in. Yeah, because I think that's a real art. And I think that I actually think like I need to learn that not just to pitch to you, but just in general to like, you know, now that I'm like, basically, this is my career. And it's like, yeah. I better figure out like, I mean, I pitch to the New York Times all the time. And not I mean, and Emily Weinstein there used to write me back. I'm like, oh, this is very nice. But no. And now we're at the point where like, I pitched to them. And there's like, Radio silence. Yeah. yeah. So I definitely need an education, but this is not about <laughs> my education. We're about to analyze your <laughs> lunch. So Matt Rodbard, what did you have for lunch today? Well, listen, Adam, I cooked from Food IQ. I had to. I've mm-hmm. been cooking from Food IQ for two years. So the book is out uh, February 22nd. And, you know, the book is about giving confidence to home cooks. Like that is the number mm-hmm. one thing. And so when we decided on the hundred questions Daniel and I, my co-author, Daniel Holzman, we needed to root these questions and answers in something. We couldn't just, Mm -hmm. it wasn't just a book of facts. What we did was we had 100 questions, answers, and recipes with each of the answers. To us, that was essential because we wanted to make Mm -hmm. sure, you know, when when you do something in the kitchen, you cook something, you are learning that way. And we felt like that was the approach. Um, to mm-hmm. for food IQ is that you needed to have, go to that extra step and actually cook mm-hmm. the answer. Um, yeah, because then it's not it's like teach a man to fish versus give a man to fish. It's like yeah. if you just follow a recipe to the letter and don't learn anything from it, then you're not really becoming a better cook. But if you actually learn why the thing that you're doing is worth doing, which this book is filled with stuff like yeah. that, um, then you actually become a much better cook. So I hear what you're saying. Yeah, and speaking of give a man a fish, teach a man to fish. This was my lunch this afternoon. It was fish. <laughs> good, good transit, good transition. You, okay, we didn't talk about yeah. it ahead of time. It was a good transition. No, we didn't plan this. Okay, so what what was the specific fish lunch? So the the question that I wanted to uh, cook from was, um, you know, how do I cook a whole fish? How do I cook a whole fish? What is a whole fish? That's essentially the the question. Um, and we in the answer we talk about frying a whole fish, braising a whole fish. There's lots of ways to cook a whole fish, and I think cooking a whole fish is nothing better than it because there's mm-hmm. lots of uh, reasons why you know having a fillet at the fish shop or at Whole Foods or wherever you're buying your fish is great. But when you cook mm-hmm. a whole fish, and as Eric Repair tells us in the book, we had over 20 experts interviewed, it's just more tender. It's just mm-hmm. the, when you're cooking on the bone, it's just it has this flavor and tenderness, and the, so the, the feel of it is better. So, Although I have to say, in terms of my own lunch therapy, <laughs> I have a fear of choking on a fish bone. Like I have a major fear of it. So that's why I have never done a whole fish. But you know, so you're an, see my so own you, you lunch are, therapist. No, so you're so you're, um, and I can get into the therapy side because my wife. Um, there was an incident that happened about an hour and a half ago um, <gasps> uh, with my wife. Um, but I'll just say about how we prepared it. Yeah, please. I keep interrupting. No, I, I love it. Your yeah. This yeah. is part of therapy. And and to be <laughs> honest, you know, I cook in paper. For us, that is the best way to cook a whole fish it is to steam mm. on papillot in paper. Um, because what you can do is you're not frying. It's not getting all over the, you know, all over your stove. It's self-contained. Mm-hmm. And you can go in some cool directions. We I decided to do kind of a Japanese style with, with mirin and soy sauce and scallions mm-hmm. Um, but you can also use tomatillos and uh, more Mexican flavors. You can do it um, with lemon and white wine, which is like a French mm-hmm. style. 
Um, Although the first time I ever tried to do papillote was again at the beginning of Amateur Gourmet. <laughs> and I, I, I poured so much white wine into the papillote that it dissolved the paper. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so like it all came like pouring out onto the cutting board. And it was I, and I actually threw the fish away. I'll never forget oh. because I was so naive about like how cooking works. I put it in the oven and it was like I was like it just looked horrible. And so I was like, oh, I guess I ruined it and threw it out. And now I realized, no, you could have actually just kept cooking the fish. Kept cooking. You uh, go to it's like a little scorch. The paper is a little, yeah. little brown. So yours today had what what was in it again? Scallions? Got a full scallions. bass. I went down to my my, my market, okay. um, got a bass, and um I stuffed the cavity first. I put some salt on it and some black pepper. Mm. Stuffed the cavity with um with some scallions. Mm -hmm. Um and I added mirin and soy sauce. Mm. Um, okay. So in an Asian mm -hmm. direction. Yeah, East it. Asia. I loved it. Yeah. Absolutely. And how did you serve it? What, was it just by itself or was there a, a rice or like a side dish? You know, it's funny. I've been thinking a lot about rice and I love rice. But then like tomorrow, my wife and I, I've been talking about like, how do we like eat healthy? And we're like more protein and vegetables, less rice on the plate. Yeah. So I've been in that mood recently, which is sad because I fucking love rice. So good. No, no. I mean, it's lunch. I mean, I'm doing a very light lunch this week. I've been doing smoothies for yeah. lunch because I'm trying to, I just rejoined a gym. So oh, I yeah? a smoothie bar. Um, I know that's why I look so buff. You look right? good. You guys can't see me. Oh yeah. I'm is that glowing. an APC shirt? Uh, you have an APC sweater? Uh, yeah. yeah I'm wearing a, it has an ice cream sundae on it. That's why I bought it. Wait, APC um, plus sundae. That's like you. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I got it at Bloomingdale's where my mom dragged me as nice. a kid, kicking and screaming, and now I go there because it's just everything it's is great. there. But okay, so this lunch, I have a lot of questions. Sure. Because, you know, our, our goal here is to see this lunch beyond just your cookbook, but yeah. to see how it represents you and what it reveals about you. Yeah. And um, just for starters, though, like how... Now I I know that you were you were planning to talk about this book on the podcast because normally my qu first question is um, how much of the fact that you were going to be talking about this lunch mm -hmm. impacted what you had for lunch versus like what you would normally have yeah. for lunch. I don't know, what would be a more normal lunch for you? Um, I'll just add to you that I I included a vegetable. I did um, mushrooms, uh, foliaki style. So I was doing a full kind of Japanese style, and I I added so it was like a. Um, Banapi mushroom with um with miso with a dark miso and what kind of mushroom was that? A bunapi. It's like these little like they look like the tiny little heads and the long stems. Yeah, yeah, sure, um, sure. And so I like that. And you can use like shiitakes. You can use oysters, king oysters too. Uh, and I you seal it with foil, and so it's butter. And I forgot about butter on the fish, by the way. Sorry, there's butter in there, obviously, butter and oil. Oh, okay. So the, the fish was in papillote and then the mushrooms were in foil? Yes, exactly. So similar. Okay, so there's something very womb-like about these, <laughs> these, this lunch. I mean, maybe you're recreating the womb. This is good psychology. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you cook the mushrooms and yeah. you cook. But keep going. What yeah, else was yeah, in the mushrooms? Yeah, the mushrooms did that. That was also a soy sauce, butter, and, and, um, and miso, a dark miso. Uh, and those, those both were in for about 30 minutes um, mm -hmm. at 425. What, what temperature? 425. 425, okay. yeah. So pretty high temperature. Actually, I think I had it in 26 minutes. I'll be clear about that. So Okay. And then in terms of your typical lunch, would it be this elaborate on a typical day? Or is this something special for lunch therapy? Man, I'm not going to front like some food writers and being like, I cook like a full <laughs> whole fish for lunch. No, no one expects you to. No, I wouldn't <laughs> want any of my food writers to cook a full fish every day. I like to keep like the 10, I used to start work at 10, 1030 uh -huh. even and go late. I have some West Coast folks in my life and I feel like I want to stay on the West Coast a little bit. So I don't really have a, a strict lunch. 
my wife Tamara makes amazing lunch and she'll make um, oftentimes some cauliflower rice uh, and she'll, she'll mm-hmm. do a cauliflower rice stir fry um, for lunch, which I love. I also enjoy a smoothie for lunch. So I've been team mm-hmm. smoothie. Um, yeah. I like a peanut butter chocolate style. I don't, and berries. Oh, I did berries today. Do you yeah, do? Blueberry bliss. Mm-hmm. Oh, t- oh, nice. That's a fancy it jam. A, it's a fancy jam. Yeah, I know. It has, yeah. That, I mean, that's the only way I'll go is if like it's a little bit fancy. I hate going to the gym and I only recently just rejoined because I quit during Delta and then I rejoined when we got vaccinated and then I yeah. quit again during Omicron. So You're, every time there's a new, um, you know, variant, I quit the gym. Like, low key, let me ask you I mean, are there celebrities at this gym in Los Angeles? Because I feel that's a thing. <laughs> Minor celebrities at my gym. I mean, Let's there's um, tick TikTok stars. So oh. like, I'll I'll see them. I'm like, who is that person? I'm like, oh, I think they're like they. I mean, they act. They're hot. They're hot. Then yeah, I'm trying to think if I've ever seen like a big celebrity. I think I did, but I have to think about who it was. It's been so long since I saw a major celebrity. But wait, we skipped over something because sure. you alluded to it earlier, which was something happened. There was an incident with your wife oh. and a bone. Yeah, absolutely. So I made this lunch that, as I've noted, is not the typical lunch. Uh, and Tamar has been awesome. I mean, we've been together for almost 20 years and, and we've cooked, wow. cooked together a lot. Oh yeah. It's awesome. Awesome. W- my wife is awesome. I said awesome four <laughs> times, um, <laughs> but it's true. And, and she eats most of the things I, I cook and is very polite about it. Um, frankly, it's fucking skeezed her out big time. <laughs> she was, oh, this lunch did? She okay. was not ready for the full fish. And honestly, it, um, she ate one bite and was like, I'm sorry, but I can't, I can't. Now, was it because, now does she normally eat like fish fillets? She does. And she loves fish. I feel like I haven't cooked a whole fish in a while. I've done it a few times. We moved upstate recently. I haven't done it since we lived in Brooklyn. Oh, nice. Yeah, cool. it's been nice. Um, and so I, I guess I've had thought, in my head thought she would be down with this, but she saw the head, looked into mm-hmm. the eyes, was like, ugh. ugh. Really? Yeah. Maybe she should come on lunch therapy. Sounds like she needs some talking to. Well, I think that's fascinating. I always think like, Americans in particular seem to like want to be as divorced from where their food comes from as they possibly can. Cause when you go to Europe and you like buy a chicken, it has like the head still on it, you know, right. and uh, feet still sticking out. So, um, but I mean, for me, the whole fish thing is not about being squeamish. It's really just about those little bones. So when you prepared this, did you like lift the flesh off the bones or did you just serve it the whole fish on the table? I brought the whole fish to the table um, with the paper kind of folded to the side and it was a beautiful fish. I mean, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. I haven't really bought whole fish from this market. It's a little kind of um, Asian, a, a Korean-owned market, and they have great fish there. And I was able to lift the head off, and the, mm-hmm. it did the full like Heathcliff Garfield style, where you're like had the, <laughs> had the whole f- head and oh. then the bones it fell right apart. I didn't have any bone issues. The flesh was clean. It had a little yeah. bit of the the scallions were in there. It had you know I dipped it into the into the scal- into the soy sauce and the butter. Yeah. Um, I loved it. I ate most of it. (laughs) If you had served it to your wife without the head and the bones, do you think she would have liked it better? I think if I would have, it would have been part of a larger meal and I, Mm -hmm. it was a course and I deboned it and brought it as just fillets and it was part of a multi-course and we're dining outside on our patio or something. Mm -hmm. I feel like that is the way to do it. Um, not, not with the head. No, 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 no. Yeah. 
No. I get it. Okay. Well, I feel like now we need, I want to delve into a little bit about your, your specific history sure. with food because we've learned about your history with journalism and writing, but we haven't yet learned about like your relationship to food, like where you grew up, what kind of food you ate. Yeah. So where did you grow up and what kind of food did you eat? <laughs> it's a great question. I grew up in West Michigan. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so I'm a Midwest dude. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up in Kalamazoo and I had a household that was based around my mom living and growing up in Detroit and my father living and growing up in Chicago. Okay. My father um, grew up in a Jewish household, you know, typical mm-hmm. Jewish Ashkenazi style. My mom's father um, was British and so they boiled the shit uh, out of everything, like 1950s. So your dad's last name, was it changed at Ellis Island to Rodbard? It was. There were some stories about red beards. There's stories about other Polish things, shtetl yeah. life. Um, uh-huh. But I, I think there was a little bit of changing. Um, yeah, but he had a mm-hmm. great... My family's name was changed to, to Roberts from, I think, Rothenburg. Oh, where are you from? Yeah. Where's, your, where's your family from? I mean, New, I mean New York. But we're New York Jews. Oh, we're like G- Russian Jews. You're Russian, Russian okay. Jews. Yeah, very Russian. So, wait. So, your dad's side is Jewish, and then your mom's side is British. But was she British Jewish? She was British? British, raised, um, raised uh, Catholic, okay. uh, and raised Lutheran. To be honest, um, but then mm-hmm. converted when I was young. Uh, and to Judaism? to Judaism. Yeah. Wow. Do you remember going to the conversion ceremony? Oh my gosh. I have a great mullet. I'm a little chunky and it's a great <laughs> photo op. Um, I had a naming ceremony. She read the book, uh-huh. what is a Jew, which is a classic canonical, yes. um, conversion book. Um, it was amazing. I loved my Jewish upbringing. At a bar mitzvah, we had an amazing, we had a wonderful temple, Temple B'nai Israel. Was she Israel. like Charlotte on um, like Sex in the City? He was like, I'm going to make challah bread tonight. She, I'm going to make matzah ball. I mean, she didn't, tr- like she was effortless with this conversion. My mom yes. loved, uh, I think she loved the culture. She's involved in the temple even more today than ever before. Mm-hmm. She's one of the temple ladies who lunch now. And mm-hmm. um, we had a lot of really great Jewish food traditions in our house, like latkes at you know, at Hanukkah and Passover and nice. all that. Yeah. So, so would you say that culinarily the food that you remember the most eating at home was Jewish inflected or Jewish inspired? Adam, you know, honestly, we didn't really do that outside of the holidays. I'd say our food was straight up food network inspired. Um, okay. We're talking Got about it. the nineties. Like I was a child yes. of the nineties. Um, I, Two hot tamales. Oh my goodness. Uh, Mario Batali. Yeah, you know, Sarah Moulton. Moulton. I mean, like all that stuff was on constantly. Yeah. My my dad um, was a great cook and loved cooking um, Italian cuisine right straight from Molto Mario. And mm-hmm. Bobby Flay tamales and, and enchiladas were always a staple. Bobby Flay. I mean, Mar- Mario Batali's show to me is, is disp- I mean, I have to like, it's like separate the artist from the art or whatever is going yeah. on. But like, I just hit myself with a microphone <laughs> sidebar. Um, it's Mario that kick- one, punching like, back. <laughs> yeah, he's punching back. But like, I that show taught me 90%, I think, of what I at least know about making pasta, if not everything you know it, to me it was so incredible i actually had Lori woolliever on this podcast oh, I love Lori. and she and she was mario's assistant while they were making that show and she sort of punctured the balloon of it a little bit by telling me that a lot of it was made ahead and oh, you know, yeah. it was a lot of swap swap outs but still it was an incredible show i love that show um i loved the idea that it was italian cooking done all the minute 
Let me tell you mm-hmm. one thing, a quick story about Food IQ related to Mario Batali's TV yes, shows. Please. So I'm sure you remember this idea of, of finishing the pasta in the pan, him calling yes, the I sauce the condiment. The He's calling it the condiment. Mm-hmm. This and is he called na- it the marriage ceremony. The marriage ceremony. It was 1993. We had never heard of anyone talk about Italian food like that. Influential moment in in kind of U.S. food history. I think David Camp writes about it in the United States of arugula. Mm-hmm. So one big part of that kind of marriage ceremony was adding pasta water, right? Adding yes, the pasta water to, to the sauce and creating the emulsification. So in food, I, I do it every time. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. No, food no. IQ. <laughs> in food IQ, we are like no. Don't do what? that. What? Why? Right, right. You're like, what? What? Yeah, I don't believe this. No, no, yeah. no. Here, okay, hear me out. Okay, two things. First, A, and Daniel worked at A16. He worked at, which in San Francisco, legendary mm-hmm. uh, Italian restaurant. I mean, the guy has worked yeah. at a lot of Italian restaurants over the 20 years of his career. He makes, we talked about a lot, just like this on Zoom, like we all the time talk about food and where he's like, listen, you don't have enough starch in that pasta water. In a in a single batch of pasta to do anything. Okay, that's the first point. The second point is what you are doing though, and what is can be very very bad for the situation is you're adding sometimes a lot of this extremely salty water over. I mean, you're seasoning it like the sea if you're gonna if you're doing your pasta water right. And some people will Dis- add- disagree slightly, but keep going. No, no, please disagree. I love to let's talk about. It. So, well, because we- I cooked on I cooked on stage once with Scott Conan yeah, for yeah. the LA Times Book Festival, and he told me to season the pasta water like a good broth, not like the sea. It shouldn't be undrinkable. The people debate on that idea about should taste like the sea or not. So I feel like okay, I'm- but keep going. But I want to hear the rest of this because so does he have you add any kind of liquid to the sauce so, or just yes? But the, what's important is is even if it was like a broth, you're still adding salt. So if you're already seasoning right. your salt, your your sauce, you're tasting and tasting and tasting it, and at the last moment you are actually adding this um, pasta water. Chances are you're adding the, all, too much salt, and you could over season. So that's that's the issue with pasta uh, with the stock. What we do encourage is taking hot water from your tap and using that, um, mm-hmm. what they call it a restaurant, in a restaurant where they call it pipe stock, right? It's like from mm-hmm. the pipes. And, right. and and truly that is the way you make your sauce coat the noodles and you and the pasta. Uh, it's the way you emulsify. You add a little bit of that water and you're kind of, you don't want your sauce to be clumpy and and, and really break, you know? You want your sauce. Well, I think we agree. I think we're all on the same page, except, and it sounds like the key difference between how I do it and how you guys do it in this book is that you don't want to add the very salty pasta water to the sauce in the final marriage ceremony. But you do agree with the idea of adding some water to make make it all kind of connect up and like allow it to absorb into the pasta as it boils away in the pan with a very al dente pasta. Very al dente, two minutes yeah. less or three minutes less. Essential. Adding that water is essential. I would never say don't yeah. add water. And I think for me, like the lesson of the Scott Conant thing was tied to the fact that I once served way too salty pasta to my husband's family in Washington state. Like I made <laughs> this giant vat of my favorite pasta dish, which is Lydia Bastianich's cavatappi with sun-dried tomatoes and cannellini beans, yeah. which is incredible. Pasta beans, and shout I, out. Man, so oh good. Oh yeah, it's so good. And sun-dried tomatoes deserve a, a comeback. Maybe that's my article for taste. Did you have that already? We, Priya Krishna in 2018 wrote a, yeah. a beautiful photo uh, article about sun-dried tomatoes. And it's okay. uh, it's one of my wow. favorite. Sorry. Everything's been done before. No, no, um, no, no, no. Okay, so- <laughs> I disagree fully. 
But I, I really heavily salted the water when I cooked for Craig's family to the point where like I, it was one of those scenes where like everyone's at the table and they're like, mm, this is delicious. This is so good. And I remember like biting, biting into mine. It was like biting into an aquarium. Like it was like, oh, my God, this is so salty. So I totally get that. But my solution was just to use less salt in the pasta water mm-hmm. and then season everything together at the end. But I get what you're saying. Fair, fair enough. And honestly, if you're if you're using a lightly seasoned pasta water, that's great. I just think the writ large audience for this book is going to be putting a shitload of kosher salt into their pasta water because that's what they've been trained to do by a lot of people. Now, I look, I, I have two possible paths we can go here. One is a sharp left turn down a very long avenue. One is like a, a, the path straight ahead. Let's go long. I like I like doing a long winding road. But this is just like a, this is like a can of worms I'm about to open. But I have to ask this because Mario Batali came up, and you are an editor of a publication. Sure. And I guess my question is, I you know I've been reading like just this week there was another expose this time on Eater about um, a chef in L.A. the chef at Vespertine, sure. um, Jordan Kahn. And I'm I'm curious, like from your perspective as an editor now, like how do you feel about this new form of journalism, basically, which is the takedown or the mm-hmm. calling out of a chef or chef culture. Do you feel like there's always a time and there's always a place for it? Or do you feel like it's losing its power, or its import? Like, what is your perspective on it? Honestly, great question. I'm happy to talk about it because I think it's important to talk about, especially when you run a publication. Listen, I went, I go back to the journalism part of it. And I feel like if you follow your journalistic instincts and standards, um, you're going to write a piece that um, that is fair that mm-hmm. is important and timely. I did not read the Jordan Kahn piece in in, in full, and I know yeah. there's folks on both sides who agree and disagree with it. So I I can't comment on that and I about sure. that piece, but I'll say yeah. that for the most part, the um, the stories that I've observed from you know covering the chef and restaurant world, um, in in terms of the calling out of or the of the the reported pieces have been um, well reported have been based mm-hmm. on substance and have been important to the reader of the publication. I feel, is that too canned? I don't want to give you a canned answer. I no, no, no. I guess my, my specific question would probably be more along the lines of like, okay, you get an email tomorrow in your inbox. Like, hi, like I have an article I want to have published on taste. It's a takedown of XYZ chef who I have five different people on record who say they, that they did blah, 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 blah. Like what is, is your immediate approach okay go ahead like write it i mean like how do you think about that when when someone approaches you it's a great question and i think we have received tips we've received um unsolicited stories about um topics that and and individuals um that um would would if published would be controversial i'll say this we're a team of two now we used to be a team Mm -hmm. of four and really, we are not a publication that does those types of deeply reported stories. Right. What I will say is if you look at Eater and Amanda Clute and her team, you look at the places like the New York Times, Emily Weinstein and her team, and you look at the work that they put into it, you got to give them the credit for yes. fielding more of these, 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 uh, these questions or more of these um, submissions. And mm-hmm. a lot of people don't talk about that, about the, what they're not writing. And those decisions they're making, it takes a lot of time. There's a lot of oh, emotional yeah. weight that they carry from dealing with these stories on a day-by-day basis. Taste is not 
um, a publication that that is staffed um, and equipped to do a expose on an individual. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I guess the other part of that story, and then I want to go back on the main path sure. and learn about your, your history yeah. with cooking, is the like idea of like where is the line between what I guess is typical chef culture or like the culture, the brigade system mm-hmm. that's been in place since like the, you know, the early 1800s to, um, to abuse, like, like with the Jordan Kahn article, I too didn't read the whole thing. It was enormous. That was like a novel. That yeah. article. So I mean, you really need to take time with it, but like just a lot of the stuff it was talking about was just the chef at the helm of a restaurant sort of demanding that everyone be quiet. Everyone wear slippers, everyone, yeah. you know, that he got furious because someone did this. I mean, from your perspective, having worked with chefs and done this is, you know, where is the line? Well, that sounds pretty crazy, first off. And I yeah. feel like that seems abusive. And I would say mm-hmm. that's not okay to to demand your staff go through these types of motions and these types of um, these restrictions of, of truly living their lives as a cook. I feel that uh, that's what I'll say that to that. But I mean, my experience with chefs and I worked with Dookie Hong and I'm still working who's a good friend of mine. Uh, we worked in Koreatown. We wrote that book. and we're Which is an awesome cookbook. We should plug that one Let's, too. The Koreatown yeah. cookbook is gorgeous. Thanks, so bud. Congratulations on that too. Yeah. yeah, it came out and we're working on our next, our follow-up called Korea World and that's scheduled to come out in 2024. And nice. um, and Daniel, I've, I've uh, been working with him. We wrote two columns, one for Savour, one for Taste and now the book and I've been in his kitchens a lot and you know, it, it comes down to no assholes rule. No assholes, yes. like don't hire assholes mm-hmm. and don't be an asshole. And I think a lot of the the bullying um, exposés, which, you know, we separate from the Ken Friedman and Mario Batali stories, which are sexual assault and much more serious right, right. Um, sure. claims, but still bullying and those th- that phase of the story are very important to tell. And it, it seems the ones that actually get told through these publications like Eater and New York Times are really a, bad instances of being an asshole not right because there's liability there too it's like for them to go out on a a limb and really call this person out yeah they're basically putting themselves out there and saying hey we fact check this you know if you sued us about this yeah we have enough evidence so um well i feel bad i dragged you down this left turn path but i (laughs) but it also like it was was on my brain because you're an editor and because you we were talking about mario but back to you so i want to learn more about your um, relationship to cooking specifically like because you're doing these cookbooks with recipes. Mm-hmm. When did you start cooking? I started cooking, um, I started with omelets. Uh, I overcooked the okay. omelets severely. I got them to the point where they were brown. And this, what, How old were you? I was like seven and, or eight. I mean, I was making- Oh, you are a kid. I was a kid. I loved cooking as a kid. And I my, my dad, I would make I would make these really crispy omelets. And I thought, you know, this is what an omelet needs to be like. I would put a little <laughs> hot sauce on it. And this is before I even knew Jacques Pepin's YouTube about, you know, how to cook the perfect omelet in two minutes. Yeah. But um, I, I loved cooking breakfast. I loved cooking things like chicken soup with my dad on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Um, we were a f- household in the 90s. It was a very busy time. My parents both worked. And so we definitely had our, our uh, Boca Burger, Morningstar Farms mm-hmm. type of dinners too. Uh, and right. I'd, be, I'd be untruthful if I didn't claim that, if I didn't say that uh, we were eating if takeout quite a bit at times, you know, it's busy, busy times, you know, what did your parents do? My, my dad was a furniture salesman. Um, Mm -hmm. he, uh, and ran, uh, furniture stores. And then before that he sold records, he was in the record industry, uh, and sold another music connection. Boogie records at Kalamazoo, Michigan, Ohio. And Boogie records was his, uh, 
his business. And my mom was a kid. I hope you have a t-shirt from it. Dude, they are there. They sell those in Kalamazoo at the vintage stores for like 200 bucks. They're awesome. Wow. People there were so skinny though. They were like tiny little people. <laughs> but, I mean, do you ever look back at photos of your, of your parents or their peers? Yeah. How skinny, I mean, you're, you're a fit I guy, know. but I'm like, man, I'm not that fat. No, this is all. I, I put on the beauty filter on Zoom, so it just takes it gets off like 10 I mean, pounds. It was an yeah. era of, uh, of you know, a little bit of, there was a little bit of cocaine, a little bit of oh, diet yeah. pills. So wait, wait, what did your mom do? She, you were about to say. She was a kindergarten teacher for 17 years. So she okay. was an educator. Yeah. Okay. So you were home, you were seven, you were making omelets. And so was, did you have siblings? My sister, Julia. Yeah. My sister. Older, um, younger. A younger sister, two years younger. Yeah. Absolutely. And was she, so would, would, would you guys like cook together or like, would you hang out in the kitchen if your parents weren't home? Would you make them dinner? We would make things like nachos for my parents. We would cook a little bit. I wouldn't call us big um, cooking together. That wasn't our relationship. I, I'd say we, we definitely had baking moments. Like we, in the, in the, in the holidays, we'd make toffee every year. Um, we would do some, you know, make cheese supremes and which are basically like quesadillas we'd make that mm -hmm. um i mean listen we ate a lot of reese's peanut butter cup cereal like i feel <laughs> sure. like half my meals are reese's peanut butter cup cereal oh yeah my family was all entomans our <gasps> house was filled with entomans and my, my dad and i every morning before i went to school and he went to work as a dentist ironically <laughs> i would we would have like chocolate entomans donuts or like lemon coconut cake or crumb cake from the box like Damn. that was my childhood so there's no judgment here but with you what i'm trying to get at and what i haven't quite figured out yet is like when did food for you like start to take on like more meaning than it does for the average person? And when did you start to become obsessed with it? Great question. I, I would back up and say quickly that my childhood was rooted in restaurant culture. Like we would go uh -huh. to restaurants in Chicago. We would travel to all over the country. We drove a lot and we'd go to like Ohio and have ribs down there and go to South Carolina. Mm -hmm. We went to Europe once in, when I was uh, in high school and went to Paris and ate some great food there. My parents were huge fans of going out to eat and always talk shit about the local restaurants in like a cool way. Mm -hmm. Like did de definitely didn't love a lot of the restaurants, but were into a few supported local chefs. Food why Dance Cafe. In, uh, I have to shout that out. Food <laughs> Dance Cafe in Kalamazoo. Food Dance Cafe. So good. Why, why did your parents, how did they wind up in Kalamazoo? They both grew up in, um, so Detroit, Chicago. Kalamazoo is the midway point between the two. There's a okay. university there, Western Michigan University. Kalamazoo is an awesome town. I, I really yeah. have grown over time to love the the city, and I, I spend a lot of time there. Um, there's two universities and colleges there. Um, it's got a real counterculture vibe to it. It's got mm -hmm. a, this kind of hippie era holdover vibe. Uh, they've got arts. They've got nature. It's really nice. I think that they just both enjoyed going to school there, and my dad mm -hmm. didn't go to school there. He went to University of Hawaii got to Kalamazoo and decided this is a great place to open a record shop. Wow. What a climate shift from know. University of Hawaii to Kalamazoo. So, okay. So you're, you, it's actually very similar to my story. I wonder if it's a Jewish thing of like loving to go out to restaurants yeah. and eat foods. Cause my, my parents would take me to restaurants too. And that, that like obsession with meals like my family was just like, I mean, Craig, when he comes to visit my family is like, it's like, he makes fun of me. And it's like, you know, thinking about breakfast at dinner, or mm -hmm. thinking about dinner at breakfast. It's like my parents literally will have a conversation at lunch about where we're going to have dinner that night. And then at dinner, it's like, where are we going the next day? And so it sounds like maybe your family was similar in thinking about restaurants and meals in a similar way. Jews love to talk about food. Jews like to talk yeah. about 
you know, going to the bathroom. I mean, it's truly every, <laughs> you just spit take. I, I love that. I got, you're in mid sip and you went boom. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so true. I mean, I just read Mary, Mary Roach just came on my podcast and she wrote the book Gulp, which is if you've never read Gulp, I think it's essential food reading because it's, you know, it's like up there with like, you know, Anthony Bourdain's, you know, Kitchen Confidential. It's like up there. It's gulp is about your digestive system and where it all goes and how it all works. And it's shocking. Dude, I loved that interview. I went on a long drive and listened to it. I just, <laughs> I thought Mary was, and shout out to Mary Roach. I mean, living her yes. life, living her true self, living I her loved truth. Her. I, I was so honored that she came on. Yeah. But yeah, that book truly like I have never had a book truly make me want to throw up more than that book did. And I, and I, it was like towards the end, I'm not going to even talk about it. I feel traumatized and I need again, I'm my own therapist to talk about it, but there's things in that book are so gross. Okay. So going to the bathroom, eating at restaurants, <laughs> yeah. but okay. When did you, so you talked a little bit when we first started about the journalism journey, mm -hmm. but like when you were writing for WWE or working at those places, were you at home, like cooking a lot? Listen, I wasn't, I was living in a small Brooklyn apartment with my wife and, and we weren't cooking a lot. And I actually fought cooking a lot because I was like, mm -hmm. I don't have a great kitchen. I was so negative about mm -hmm. cooking, but what I was doing was eating in New York and, and covering okay. New York dining scene and as a, as a writer and just getting to meet people in food and getting to love New York city through its food. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's true. Like Brooklyn in the early 2000s was an amazing place to have food. There was so many oh, restaurants, yeah. you know. Where in Brooklyn? I lived in Park Slip around then. I moved to Carroll Gardens in 05. I was in Carroll oh, okay. I was in, in Carroll Gardens for 16 years. Um, so remember, Frankie's was like the only thing when you're down Court Street, right? Yeah. I was more of a, a Franny's guy personally because I was on that side of the tracks. But Frankie's was pretty. Both good are too. good. Franny's, I mean, both Franny's was 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 excellent. The pizza there and the, and the pedigree. I loved it. So good. The pedigree coming out of there. The, the chefs there that you know are amazing. And Franny's was like the first time I ever experienced what is now omnipresent, which is that individual pizza like. The little the appetizers from like the wood burning oven, the gelato for dessert, like that kind of restaurant, which is <laughs> truly everywhere. Everywhere. Um, it feels like it feels like it started. I mean, at least for me, um, that was my first taste of that. So, uh, okay, so you were in Brooklyn. So when you write this book, when you're working on Food IQ and you're working on Koreatown, maybe I, you can clarify for me like the process yep. of like the because since you're collaborating with. I, I forget your collaborator for Career Town, but was he a chef? Yeah, Dookie Hong, a chef, um, now based okay. in San Francisco, but at the time was living in New York. So both these guys that you're collaborating with are chefs. So are you sort of at their side, like transcribing what they're doing? Are you at home, like saying, "Hey, email me the recipe"? <laughs> like, what's your, what's your, how do you do both. it? Both. I mean, really, with Dookie, you know, we, we he was running, a, opening a busy restaurant, Baekjung, Kengodong Baekjung at the time. So he, I was hanging out at his apartment and cooking with him through that book. Like we developed mm -hmm. those recipes and um, together and I was transcribing and doing the tip, the classic kind of collaborator move with Daniel. We've been writing partners. I consider him a writing partner and a collaborator mm -hmm. uh, for uh, eight years through two publications and now a book. And he's mm -hmm. a, he's a great writer. We, we both link up really great on the page. And mm -hmm. so I have a, and Dookie's a great writer too. So I don't want to undersell him. We, we would link up on the page too. Um, but I'd say Mike, the way I approach books is a little different. I'm pretty hard charging mm -hmm. and demanding with, with my collaborators and my partners, but I think it goes both ways. And I feel like it's a collaboration. It's not ghostwriting. Mm -hmm. That's a real talent and art. And I, and I certainly, um, am not one of those folks of some like Genevieve mm -hmm. Co, JJ Good. 
two names of folks who oh, yeah. do these books, it's very difficult uh, and a very different muscle to do the collaboration. Mm -hmm. My voice and Daniel's voice, my voice and Dookie's voice are in these books, and I treat them like a, their own pieces, their own journalistic pieces. We we are almost we wrote the whole book in third person, Food IQ. Just mm -hmm. so that shows you a little bit about how we approached it. it wasn't in the chef's voice, it wasn't in my voice. It was in third. Um, and so I think these collaborations can be very different. These have worked mm -hmm. well for for me and and Dukey and Daniel, and I hope to we're going to continue doing them. And with Dukey, like with the Koreatown book, I'm curious. I mean, you know, there's a lot of conversations now about you know cultural appropriation and things like that. Obviously, like you guys were collaborating together. Um, but I'm in in terms of like your job on the Koreatown book, how how did you manage as a white man yeah. to navigate like the cultural sensitivity of like you know wanting the recipes to be authentic? That's I know that's a terrible word. Yeah. But specific. To, but to make to, to, for them to be what you know what they started out as versus like whitewashing them. I don't know what word to use, but how did you what how did you feel in that role and how did you navigate that role? It's a good question. We 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 wrote the book and we started in 2012 when we collaborated mm -hmm. on, a, on a separate book and we went, we started dining out. So it was like well before a lot of these questions were occurring, yes. these needed question conversations. It came down to this. I'm a fan of Korean food. I was a, I'm mm -hmm. a huge fan of the culture. I'm a fan of the people. I've been to Korea like six times now and I love, I love it. And Dookie and I like came together over that mutual love the Great. the 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 restaurant the, the the recipes come from dookie like he's writing mm -hmm. the recipes i'm there to help shape the narrative and the story i have one in that book i have one essay in first person about kind of my story why 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 would why you and korean food he writes about mm -hmm. his personal story but ultimately we're there and what we're doing with korea world now that we're working right. on our follow-up it's a third person we're in the corner observing yeah. Korean food. We're observing it. We're loving it. We're, we're, we're fanboying over it. And so as opposed to saying this is my version of kimchi jjigae or Dookie, like Dookie's version, et cetera, we're not taking ownership, so to speak. We're kind of just creating this work that is a love letter. So I, it's corny. It's corny. I don't like yeah. love letter. But no, no, no. But I get it. And I think what you're doing sounds very honorable as opposed to like a white chef like releasing their Pad Thai cookbook or something. It's like, I think that's the issue. <laughs> is like when somebody comes forward and is like, you know, this is this is my take on this cuisine, which a lot of people can have issues with, which it's, it's not what you're doing. I'm trying to be more of the writer journalist um, in, in these works. And in Food IQ, we, we have a lot of other voices from mm -hmm. you know experts in the fields that we are talking yeah. about. Like we interviewed Jose Rolat, who wrote this incredible book about tacos. And we asked him about, for our question about um, tamales, we wanted to mm -hmm. ask him about tacos. You know, Therese Nelson, who is a taste cook in residence and a friend of mine, we wanted for our question about mac and cheese, it was important to mm -hmm. talk to her about the black history of mac and cheese. And, mm -hmm. and soul food, and we're trying to debunk the idea that all black food is soul food, which it's not. And so we couldn't obviously tell the story through our gaze and our point of view. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we took the responsibility and the time to have these conversations and these they're really fun and pleasurable Zoom conversations. We wrote the book during the pandemic. And so mm -hmm. we were doing Zooms with all these wonderful people talking about their expertise, Lagaya Mishan, we talked about adobe with her, adobe, sorry, adobe, adobo with her in Filipino cuisine, which she wrote a great book about. Um, we, you know, Helen Rosner went to Japan 
and wrote this amazing piece about this MSG factory. And, oh, yeah, yeah. and for the New Yorker, I'm sure you've read that. And so we talked mm-hmm. to Helen about her experience there for our question about MSG. Priya Krishna, I'll give That's you one awesome. more example because I feel uh, yeah. I want to give the shout out to these folks because it was just really fun to get to know them better or, or, or get to them for the first time. Priya, we wrote for our question about making homemade yogurt. Is it worth making homemade yogurt? It's a question we're asked a lot. Short answer is mm-hmm. hell yeah, it's worth making homemade yogurt. But we wanted to find out why does she love yogurt so much because Priya wrote a column for Taste About Yogurt that I thought was really fun and smart. Priya is really good at pitching. I mean, whatever she's doing, <laughs> she's getting through the gates. I mean, so maybe this is a good time to circle back Let's do to it. that question. Tell me about pitching. Well, what, 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 what do you look for in a good pitch? Well, Priya, first off, uh, is a great journalist and writer and files on time. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Always file. I haven't even had an opportunity to file on time. Um, I didn't get my pitch through. Yeah. Pitching is tough. And in your times, I've had the cone of silence as well. Like, I'm not going to front like I. I've had so much silence in my career and it's just part yeah. of it. So as an editor on the other side, I really try to empathize with the work that goes into the pitches. And if anyone um, honestly is hearing this, who hasn't heard back from Anna, Hazel or I at taste, I just say, please resend the pitch right now. Mm-hmm. We will, as this airs, we'll look at it again. Things get, Oh wow. No, That's a good offer. I, it's a real offer. And I, I think we legitimately want to answer folks one by one. What makes a good pitch, honestly, understanding taste, understanding our publication. We don't do a lot of celebrity profiles. We do a lot of home cooking, quick learning on our Wednesday newsletter. I'll have to shout out tastecooking.com as our website. And we could see that we, on our newsletters, which we book a lot of freelance writing for our newsletters, we do a Wednesday send that's all about quick learning. So to answer your question, it's knowing what we are assigning. We do one big culture story a week. So like we met many of those are through freelance. So we, 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 Mm -hmm. and we have pitching guidelines on our website too. Yeah, I pitched for the first time this last year. I got an article published in the Washington Post, and I got one article published in the LA Times. Sick. And both, both were very like. It was just like I had a flash, like with um, with the Washington Post one. I was like, okay, like post COVID dinner parties. It was like right after the vaccine, and I was like, I was I was having people over for the first time. I was like, this feels like an article, like you know, how to host people after the, you know, what kind of food are people looking for? And so I, I remember like my strategy was just, I, I, I sort of knew Joe Yonan, the editor at the Washington Post through Twitter and stuff. And we'd like interact a little bit. Um, but I was just like on a, on a lark, I just wrote him an email. So in terms of like crafting a perfect pitch, that wasn't a perfect pitch at all. It was just like post-vaccine dinner party subject. Um, like, Hey Joe, uh, I had this idea for an article here. Mm-hmm. And I, I did include like what the recipes would be. I'm thinking of making this, I'm thinking of making this, da, da, da. And so I think it was just, it was being aware generally of like what the Washington Post food section is, but also coming up with something that felt very relevant and like mm-hmm. very publishable in this particular moment. So for you, I pitched, I pitched you a um, article about like stand and stir TV shows. And I look back on that and I'm like, that's not a great pitch. So I need like one that's like more timely. Well, stand and stir TV shows for us is a little bit of a tough one because covering media yeah. on taste and in, in my experience editing uh, food media covering media um, can be a difficult topic. As editors yes. and fans of food media, we love pop- thinking about these ideas. But I'm thinking as a reader of taste, um, mm-hmm. covering media uh, is challenging. That said, we are working on a great story. I'm not sure if it'll be out in a couple of weeks on Pierre Frenet, who was a columnist oh, yeah. for the New York Times. I have a bunch of his cookbooks. We have this great piece um, that Adam Reiner is working on about 
him at being the godfather of the six of, of cooking on the clock. I think that's our working headline right now, the godfather of cooking on the clock. So I just con- he was Craig Craig Claiborne's collaborator. Um, they wrote books together, and some say Craig was in love with him. Some would say I think David Camp writes about that in United States of yeah. Second Reference, great book. I would say I, I mean that book like is incredible. Yeah, I love it. I want there to be an update. I mean, and it, if it, yeah. if David's not going to write it, someone's got to write it because like the last twenty years, um, especially with the stuff that's happened the past five years to ten years in cookbooks and media. Really? Do you remember that that part of that book where um, Craig Claiborne has sex with a chicken? I do. Uh, it's traumatizing. Why did that? I don't know. I just all I remember is that Craig Claiborne had sex with a chicken, but I don't remember the context. Or I guess it was just because he was like, so repressed. There's some kink in the book. I mean, there's kink yeah. scenes. Um, I, I actually ended up buying um, Craig Claiborne's memoir, a "Taste Made for Laughter," and I read oh. it, and it's really fascinating because it's like you're it's almost like a monologue or like a like a movie about a character who thinks they know who they are but like you're looking like through the curtain at like what they're struggling with and that book is very illuminating what was illuminating about Craig Cleborn was that he somehow got the rights to the New York Times cookbooks and was able to profit personally off of these books what a stroke Uh of genius to actually realize that and someone the New York Times obviously didn't didn't wasn't paying attention um I would say, uh, you know, this story that Adam's reporting on about Pierre is really fascinating. I did not mean to contradict myself when we say we don't cover media because we do. I think it's more mm-hmm. like a television pop culture. Um, yeah. Like we wrote a story about, like, for example, all that and a bag of chips about like that statement and about the history mm-hmm. of all that and a bag of chips. I forget who wrote it. I'm sorry if you're listening. Love that piece so much. I thought it was so well edited and very fun and funny. Mm-hmm. It it died on the vine. It, it no one read it. No one read it. Oh no! And it's not because of the talent of the writer. It's just a reminder yeah. that once again, when media covers media, it's a very specific style of story, and our readers really want to learn, want to hear about, and read about cooking. And then mm-hmm. I think the our followers on Twitter and some of the New York centric readers, and maybe our readers in general hopefully want to read more of that inside baseball stuff. Yeah, um, I get that. It's so funny. You never know. I mean, I made a cocoa Vaughn this weekend that was nice. in my newsletter, and I made I made the egg noodles from scratch, and I was so proud. I was like, oh, my God, this is an epic newsletter. This will be sent around the world. This will have millions of viewers. And it was just like, eh. People are like, I think it was because it was so complicated. People were just sort of like not that into it. Um, well, speaking of cocoa Vaughn, we're going to transition now to my final question of sure. this portion of the podcast, which is what are you having for dinner tonight? Um, it's a great question. We are going over to some new friend's house or they're, they're kind of run an inn, um, in Chester, New York, in Florida, New York, actually is where I live. I live in Orange County and we're (laughs) Florida, New York. I've never heard of it. Or it's, it's in Orange County, New York, which no one's also heard of. I got to kind of just stay. I love where I live. It is the, it is amazing. We're only an hour and 20 minutes from the city. Are you near Irvington by any no, chance? No, we're not near Irvington. We're, not, we're on the west side of the Hudson. Okay. We're in we're right above Rockland County. And because okay, my best friend just moved oh, to Irvington. Th- That's the only reason I asked. Hudson yeah. Valley rules, man. And and I feel so yeah. fortunate to be able to like live up here and, and work in the city. We're going over to these folks' house, this 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 couple, um, because we're talking to them about having um my mother-in-law's 70th birthday party at their inn. And they're oh, they're gonna okay. cook us. Uh, we're gonna have some bites over there. And um, I gotta say, lovely gay couple. And oh, we nice. 
uh, don't have enough of that in our lives up here and I want to make friends and (laughs) tomorrow and I have a, have a, have a running competition about making friends. Uh-huh. And she's winning. So maybe you'll, yeah. So is this like your attempt to make friends? Like, is this like coming more from you? Like, do you get the credit if you become friends with them? Well, she initiated it. We both kind of initiated on Instagram. Yeah. So it, we kind of both are are credited. But honestly, because we're going to hire them to have this dinner. Yeah. And he's an amazing chef and it worked with Gavin Kaysen. Um, oh, cool. It does it. It falls outside of our friend realm. It, so our rule, we have ground rules, of course. And one of the rules is we cannot pay uh, a friend so it can't be like you're the guy you met who cuts your hair that's right, not a right. friend that's, that's a that's really funny yeah so when you go into a, someone else's dinner party like this or someone's cooking for you yeah are there like dishes that you would be very happy to see versus dishes that you would be very disappointed to see I would never be disappointed for a home-cooked meal. I mean that fully because I feel if you put any effort into serving a meal, even if you bought it and you put it on a nice plate on nice plates, I, I respect that. I can't. I agree with you up to except when I moved to LA. So I totally agree with that, hundred percent. If I go to someone's house and they make a meatloaf, if they make whatever, they could be anything. Mm-hmm. I'm so grateful, except if they're on a diet and they serve me like a diet dish, like like boneless, skinless chicken breast or something like. It's like they're like, oh, I'm on a diet this week, so I just made. And it's like, why did you invite me over? Rough dog. This is a waste of my time. Yeah, that's not okay. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, but you <laughs> can LA as we write situation. in food uh, food IQ is like honestly we the chicken breast is amazing you can you can love mm. the chicken breast and the chicken breast airline chicken it's our recipe i mean oh yeah it's you don't it doesn't have to be bad and there's a reason people mm-hmm. love it um that's true i didn't mean to call back to the book but i, I it just reminds me of these no no you're doing good you're very natural at promoting your book i think it's like all very effective it doesn't oh, come boy. across as crass uh, um, i think it comes across as no you're good it's good it's like all it's like it's seeping into the it's, unconscious it's kind of you to say f- <laughs> it's i try to yeah but wait so you were about to say though so there's nothing that would disappoint you but is there something you would especially like to see tonight when you go there for dinner we don't have a lot of bakeries up here and so any homemade oh. cake i would i would say you are a lovely human being and thank you mm-hmm. i have a huge sweet tooth and i love cakes and i love cookies and anything like that would be amazing i would love um a hot pot like i know i'm asking a lot but if someone wanted to make a denabe or do it szechuan style that's very specific that's like a very specific i know hope. i'm fishing like, for invites like what are what are the chances that they're gonna cook a hot pot tonight <laughs> I mean, if, if I don't say it, it's not going to happen. But if, it, if I okay. do say it, actually, I think we'll he's going to report back. He's, yeah. I think he's going to serve some charcuterie. Um, I think that's nice. and, and, and have a little drink. So it may not even be a full meal. I think it's more of, um, but just lovely to, to meet these folks and just lovely to have yeah. new neighbors. I just got to say. I hope it works out for you. And that oh maybe, maybe you can transition from paid friendship to actual friendship. Well, that's always nice. We need to decide tomorrow night when that happens. I think they need to, like, you know, host you or maybe if there's mm-hmm. like a, 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 a date where you go on four of you and you split the check. Yeah. You know? I think it will happen when your when your mother-in-law's birthday is over yes. and that's already happened. Then you'll see if you still hang out with them. They might drop you completely once yeah. they got the check. Do you yeah. find LA making friends difficult? I know your husband is in the industry, so that's a way to make friends. When we first moved here, I'll never forget. We had a friend 
who had a party the same night we had a, like we, we threw a Christmas party for all the people <laughs> we knew mm. in LA and this guy that also knew the same people we knew threw a party the same night and like everyone who came to our party were like we're on our way to so-and-so's party but we just want to drop in and say hi and so it was hard at the beginning <sighs> and now it, it's so easy because it's just once you have that mm. that core group then you like some, some people get pulled in and then like i meet people through food and stuff doing this podcast actually is funny because i'm making friends through the podcast that you know uh oh yeah just people that that i wouldn't necessarily like have called or reached out to who i really like like suddenly it's like oh now they're gonna be a friend it's, maybe you maybe you'll be a friend I, if next time you come to la i'd love to hang out with you in la i was just there yeah. i'm gonna be there two more times already in the spring i'm going there a lot i love i love would love to to we go to subaki maybe yeah, that'd be. I like Subaki. People, well, speaking of being a friend, you're about to be a friend to the podcast because we're about to record <laughs> ten bonus minutes for our um, for our paid subscribers. So if you'd like to listen to the next ten minutes of this podcast, be sure to go to the Amateur Gourmet Substack. I think it's amateurgourmet.substack.com and become a paid subscriber, and you'll get to hear these additional ten minutes. But Matt, thank you so much for letting me analyze your lunch. It's been one of my favorite interviews ever. Thank you for the time. Oh, wow, I I really held your feet. To the fire on some st- subjects, but I thought it was good to really go. I there, appreciate you, know? you doing that, and I, and I appreciate that you did it in a way that felt you weren't pandering. You were, you had real yeah. general general honesty, and in, you're inquisitive about these important topics. So thank you. Okay. All right. Well, I'll see you in a, like a minute. Um, all right. I'll have a good one. Thanks again. <laughs> Thanks. Don't forget, if you want to listen to my fast and funny food questions with Matt Rodbart, subscribe through my substack, amateurgourmet.substack.com. All right, I'll see you there.